Well, thank you, uh, Stephen. It's good to be with you again this morning and open God's word. I think uh, when your pastors come back, uh, since they're both over there in uh, the Great Britain, they'll both be speaking in Irish, I think, when they come back. So uh, Let's turn in our Bibles now to Matthew chapter 28 for our study today. As you're turning there, I want to just say a word about uh, the Gospel of Matthew and really the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, a very simple outline of Matthew's gospel uh, given by William Hendrickson says the gospel is about Christ's ministry on earth and uh, the simple outline is the beginning, uh, its progress, and its completion. And really, as he says, the other gospels have that also, the beginning, the, each Mark, Mark and Luke also uh, have the section of Christ's, the beginning of Christ's uh, ministry, and then they go on to its progress and find its, its culmination. An interesting, head, uh, in light of our uh, sermon topic uh, yesterday, or last Lord's Day afternoon, it's interesting that Hendrickson also says this about the Gospels, Matthew presents Jesus Christ as the great prophet. Mark presents him as the mighty king, and Luke shows him to be the sympathetic high priest. So you have prophet, priest, and king emphasized, in, according to Hendrickson, in each of those gospels. Um, anyways, these three gospels also uh, would follow that threefold outline of uh, Jesus' life and ministry. It's beginning, it's progress, and it's completion. And Matthew's, the completion of Matthew's gospel begins in chapter 21 and goes on through chapter 28. In chapter 21 of Matthew, beginning with the triumphal entry into Jerusalem where he was welcomed as the Messiah by the people, but then he was quickly rejected by the leaders, which led to Jesus' arrest and his trial, his persecution, his death and his, on the cross and his burial, all of these things which brought us forgiveness and salvation. And then he rises from the dead and he appears to his disciples and we come to Matthew uh, 28, uh, where he's uh, appeared, because he's resurrected, and we come to the very end of Matthew, chapter 28, verses 16. I'm going to start at verse 16 and read through verse 20, and here we have uh, our Lord's great commission. We thought last week about our God, who he is, and about our Savior, prophet, priest, and king. Today, we think about our great commission, the commission that Jesus has given us as Christians and as his church, and uh, this evening I'll be speaking about our hearts. How, how do our hearts fix, uh, uh, come into this, uh, this work of God? So our great commission, Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Hear God's word. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus' great commission, our commission, 
What is our responsibility as the people of God, as Christians? What did Jesus say here to his disciples? To what has he commissioned them and, and us? What are we to do as a result of his life and ministry, as all that he taught and all that he did? We want to think today about uh, this passage and what it calls upon us to do. What is our responsibility? We're going to note three headings, uh, authority and then activity, and finally assurance as we look at these, uh, this passage. And as we do that, may the Holy Spirit give us new insights and strong encouragement uh, to be about the Lord's work until he comes so that when he comes, he might say to each one of us, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. May he say that of each one of us, and may we consider that as we look at these three subjects today. Let's start with our Lord's authority, which we see he speaks of in verse 18. And Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. These first uh, words form the basis for this commission. They establish the foundation of what he calls us to do. Jesus is now in charge of all things. As a result of him fulfilling his commission that was given to him by the Father, the Father has crowned him as King and Lord of the universe, and all things are now subject to him. Many passages in the Old Testament uh, prophesied that the Messiah would be a king and a lord of all. That after his exaltation, he would rule over all principalities and powers. And Jesus is here saying that all this is being fulfilled now. All authority has been given to him. He was identifying with these prophecies that were made about him in the Old Testament. Writing later, the Apostle Paul refers to this same truth of Christ ruling over all in Ephesians 1, 20 through 23, when Paul says that the Lord Jesus, having been raised from the dead, was seated at the Father's right hand. Then he says, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that has been named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Paul goes on, and God put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Ephesians 1, 20 through 23. In another passage, Philippians 2, Paul speaks of Christ humbling himself to become man, becoming obedient to death, even the death on a cross. And he says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and, in, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, Philippians 2, 9 through 11. This doctrine we sometimes call the mediatorial kingship of Christ. As the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God always reigned with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. But after coming to earth, after he assumed human nature in union with his divine nature, having resisted temptation, having offered himself as a sacrifice for sin, dying and being raised from the dead by the mighty power of God, 
the sun is lifted to the highest place as mediatorial king of the universe, both God and man. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, expositing Psalm 110, said, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Like a king's son coming into a newly conquered region, Jesus, after coming out of the grave, was saying most emphatically here on the mountain, I, all, all this is mine. You remember Satan had once offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world if he would fall down, if Jesus would fall down and worship Satan. But the kingdoms of the world were not Satan's to give. Now Jesus, through his death and resurrection, had won the right to rule all things. The God-man gained the victory that the first Adam had lost. Authority means right to rule. But Jesus has the power to rule also. A government may have authority over a region, but if its military is weak and there's resistance in the area, then, then rebels may rule. The authority is largely a name only. If, however, the government is backed by a strong military or by a police force, it has the power to enforce its rule. Christ has both authority and power over this world. John hears the voice of the angels in Revelation 5.12. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then in Revelation 19, John saw Christ sitting on a white horse and riding out of heaven with his name being written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The first passage, worthy is the lamb, proclaims Jesus' right to rule with his authority. The second, his power to conquer. And scripture teaches that this conquering comes in two ways, Christ's conquering. Either bringing men into willing submission to his rule during our life here on earth through the preaching of the gospel or finally crushing into submission those who refuse to bow before him at his second coming. Christ conquers hearts these days as he brings people who were rebels into faith and trust in him, but he will someday crush those who continue to rebel against him. The disciples needed to hear Jesus' words here in verse 18. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. The disciples had recently gone through great disappointment and disillusionment, hadn't they? They had been confused by their master being rejected by the people that he came to save. They had lost hope for a time when he was arrested and crucified. And even after his resurrection, here in verse 17, it seems that some of them were still unsure in themselves. In a way, before the pre recent events, the disciples had been very bold and confident. They said things like, we will never forsake you. We will stand by you. They asked, we want to sit at your right and your left hand in your kingdom, Lord. 
They said, shall we call down fire upon these people who don't believe in you? They said, shall we fight for you, Lord? They were confident in themselves, these disciples. Like the disciples, several Old and New Testament figures whom God used in his service showed themselves overconfident in their own abilities, which then led to failure, followed by a defeatist attitude and a hesitancy to try anything for the Lord. Think of Moses. Think of Elijah. Think of Peter, for example. Eventually, all of them came back and renewed, when renewed in strength and confidence in God alone. The same failure, though, can happen to us as Christians today. We become enthusiastic initially about the work of God that he's called us to, maybe specific work or personal work or maybe as a church, but sometimes we dream our own dreams of how this will turn out. And perhaps we use pragmatic methods in seeking to accomplish our goals instead of relying on the Lord. And so Christians today can easily become discouraged and we can uh, we gain, get weary in our work for the Lord and our enthusiasm as the going gets tough. And so we all need to stop today and be reminded of who it is that has called us into his kingdom and who it is that has called you to kingdom work. And remember that it is he who has the authority and the power to accomplish it. We need to take our orders from on high and receive our direction from our risen Savior. We need to not think that we need to fight this battle alone or in our own strength. We need to remember this fact as we obey the Great Commission. Jesus has not sent us on a fool's errand. He has authority to bring men and women, boys and girls, into submission to him. We aren't sent out on our own authority. We don't depend on our own strength or goodness or skill. We are Christ's ambassadors. We work for him. He has all authority. Remember that. The next thing we see in this passage is our own activity. Christ calls his people to action. The authority belongs to him, but the effort is required on our part. In fact, it's because of the authority and power that we must take action. That's why the word therefore is in verse 19. Look at verses 19 and 20. Go, therefore. Jesus has all authority. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The actions named there are what? To go, to make disciples, to baptize, and to teach. That's what we are to do as Christians, as the Christian church. Go, make disciples, baptize, and teach. It's been pointed out, however, that the main verb there is make disciples. That verb is in the imperative. So that is the summary statement of our task. Our primary goal, according to this verse, is to make disciples. The other verbs are ancillary to that. 
they are participles modifying the main verb if you're interested in English grammar or Greek grammar. In other words, though, we make disciples by going, by baptizing, and by teaching. The main action is to make disciples. So let's just pause for a second and say, what is a disciple? What are we trying to make? What is a disciple? A disciple is a follower of Christ continually learning from and becoming like Christ. A disciple is one who follows Christ continually learning and becoming like his master. That's how the 12 disciples function. They lived and learned from Jesus for three years, and now Jesus is calling those disciples to reproduce themselves, to find others who will become followers of Christ and continue to learn and become like Christ. So let's talk then about the three appended participles. How is it we make disciples? First of all, by going. The church must go. To go means to go forward or to go about looking for and finding people to whom you may speak. We can't reach people if we don't go seeking them. Sure, God brings people to the church, but many more out there who need to be invited to church or led to Christ by members. Of course, there are millions all over the world, too, who need to hear the gospel. And that's why the church is involved, sending missionaries and evangelists and church planners both home and abroad. And as we go and preach and witness to the gospel, Matthew does not use the word, Matthew doesn't use the word preach in this. He says go. However, Mark and Luke emphasize uh, the preaching in their versions of the Great Commission. For example, Mark 16, 15 says, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. So the going involves proclaiming. Luke's statement of this appears in Acts 1, 8. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the near end of the earth. So going involves and assumes preaching and witnessing. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are also called to that work, to that same work. Some are called to be evangelists, some missionaries, some pastors and teachers. Others of you may be called in different, to different fields of labor, not directly related to evangelism and preaching. However, every Christian, every one of us has the duty and the responsibility, and the opportunity to be a soul winner. When the church was scattered in Acts 8, and the apostles were left to Jerusalem, and most of the Christians went forth, in Acts 8.4, it says they went forth witnessing. In Acts 11, verse 19, implies that later, the church in Antioch got its start from these very, some of these very Christians who were scattered in Acts 8.4. Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15 that we should all be ready to give an explanation for the hope we have in Christ, if we're asked. Evangelism doesn't have to be simply a scary thing, but it can be a joy and becomes more and more natural to us as we mature in Christ. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify 
your Father in heaven. Matthew 5, 14 and 16. A little more about that next week as we think about our church. Go, preach, witness. In Luke 24, verse 47, Jesus told the disciples that repentance, <clears throat> Jesus told his disciples that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. There in that pass, in that verse, Luke 24, 47, we have a short statement of the content of our preaching to call people to repentance from sin and faith in Christ for forgiveness of sin. This is, should be the emphasis of our message, the straightforward explanation of the facts of the gospel. Here's what Jesus did. Here's who Jesus is. And about man's situation under sin and under judgment. And then a call to faith and obedience. That's what we want to preach. That's what we want to say to people. That's what we want to tell them as we have opportunity to answer the questions about our faith. And as this word is preached, as it is witnessed to, lo and behold, there are those who hear. There are those who do repent. There are those who do believe. And there are those who do become Christians. And that's what necessary, is necessary in one's response to be saved, to repent of sin and to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And again, I might ask you today, have you responded to the gospel in that way? Have you understood who Jesus is? Have you believed what he came to do? Have you learned what he did on the cross and rising from the dead? And have you then, in response, repented of your sins? and turned over your life to him, put your trust in him, put your faith in him. That's the simple gospel that we need to get out to people. We need people by the Holy Spirit to understand their sin and need for a savior, to believe that Jesus really is that savior and to put all their faith and trust in him. Do you know that in your own heart? Have you put all your trust and faith in Christ? Have you turned away from sin and begun to follow him? That's what a Christian is. That's what a disciple is. And I pray that each one of you have heard that message and put your faith and trust in Christ and repented of your sins. And if not, I encourage you to make that decision to come to the Lord, even as you hear more of the gospel. So those who do repent and believe, we baptize. That's the, we go and we preach and we baptize. This is the second modifying verb. People should be baptized in the name of all three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This baptism is the outward mark of your entering the kingdom of God. This is the place where you profess your faith and confess Christ. Baptism is your symbol, you might say, of sainthood, of your being washed, of your being born again, regenerated, of your being clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and being coming a part of his church. Baptize them. Go and preach and baptize. And then the third thing is to teach those who believe. As we make disciples, we continue teaching them. I think there's really a sense in which preaching is the emphasis prior to conversion, and teaching becomes more prominent 
in the post-conversion stage. Not that we don't do both, both times. But in the beginning, people are not ready for the deep things of God at first. And more than that, they can't really accept the deep things of God until they repent of their sins and put their trust in Christ. But then, as they continue to grow, they want more and more, centered on Christ, but still all that there is in the Christian life. So what are we to teach? Well, Jesus makes it clear what he commanded, no more and no less. The whole counsel of God, as Paul put it in Acts 20, verse 27, all that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of him, as Peter put it in 2 Peter 1, 3, supplementing faith with virtue and knowledge and self-control and so forth. Our goal, remember, is to make disciples seeking to present every person mature in Christ, not just getting over the line, but maturing in Christ. Our methods, so our goals, making disciples, our methods involve going out and seeking people, preaching the good news to them, receiving them into the church by baptism, and teaching them more and more of God's ways. Go and preach, baptize, and then teach. In one sense, then, our duty is quite simple, isn't it? In another sense, it's very demanding. Even the great apostle Paul said, who is adequate for these things? All this activity, however, thankfully, is not done in our own authority or by our own power. Rather, you and I serve as representatives of of God, and also we enjoy the presence of the Holy Spirit among us. So thank God for Jesus' last words in the Great Commission, which are the last words of Matthew's gospel. They are words of assurance. Verse 20b, the second part of verse 20. Jesus says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Our master's assurance. Not only does Jesus have authority and power, but he says that he will be present with us as we go forth to serve him. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere and he's always there in the person of his Holy Spirit. It was a hard thing for the disciples to see Jesus depart this earth and return to heaven. And you and I may also wish that he was still here so he could be around and we could talk to him and touch him and he can encourage us. But Jesus said in John 16, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, Jesus said in John 16, the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Holy Spirit goes before us convicting the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. We have this assurance John 16, 7 and 8. Christ said further in John 16, I won't leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The Father will send you another comforter. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Verse 13. And in Acts 1, 8, Jesus said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Jesus, leaving this earth, And going to heaven was not the end of the story. No, it was only the beginning. 
he assured his disciples that he would never leave or forsake them, but would be always present to lead his church. And a great period of growth was on the horizon for the Church of Christ, as we see in the book of Acts. And that growth and expansion of his kingdom has continued right up to our time. Maybe sometimes we get discouraged because we don't see as many people become Christians as we'd like. Maybe we give up. Maybe we've trusted in our own skills. But we need to keep being revived and keep desiring to see the gospel going forth. The Lord is still in authority. He still calls you to action. And he still promises to be with you. If you sometimes feel fearful, as the disciples did, doubtful, as the disciples did, frightened as you look at the lost world around you, remember that Jesus is the one who will never leave you or forsake you. He doesn't send you out without providing for you. He looks after his chosen ones. As you live the Christian life more and more, day by day, you see how God uses you, how God works in the world, and how God uses his church. Authority, activity, and assurance. Let me close by mentioning one more observation about this passage. One of the beautiful things that might not appear uh, to the casual reader at first sight as you read this passage on the surface, but which is something that's definitely important and I believe meant to be drawn out, is the all-encompassing nature of the promises and direction that our Lord gives us here. I want you to notice the all-encompassing nature of the promises and the direction our Lord gives us here. You see this by looking at the various forms that are in this passage, look at them, of the word all. Have you ever noticed this before? Look how the word all appears in some form or other in this four times in this short section of scripture. And it's even more obvious in the original uh, text in the Greek. All, look at it, all authority, all nations, all that I commanded you, and all ways with you to the end of the age. Do you think Jesus was trying to say something there? All authority, all nations, all commands, always with you. When one recognizes how complete and full this commission really is, it's a marvelous thing, and it gives us great confidence. It won't be accomplished in a few days or even in one's lifetime. You may see one person brought to Christ through your personal witness in your lifetime. You may see times when it doesn't seem anyone is coming to Christ, but God is working. This commission gives us enough vision and purpose and hope to last for the rest of our time on earth. And it takes us even beyond our time, if Christ doesn't come, to give hope to future generations. Christ is building his church day by day, year by year, century by century, using the gifts and efforts of his redeemed people. And his church will keep growing until it conquers all for the glory of God. Can you adults, can you young people think of anything more encompassing, more all-consuming, more worth giving your life to, more rewarding, more certain of success, more eternally joyful 
anything more than committing yourself to this great commission Jesus Christ had given to you and me individually and to us as a church corporately. I want you today renew your commitment to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness in all the affairs of life. What did those disciples do? How did they feel that day? What if you and I have the same resolve and the same blessing that they received at that time? Won't you renew your kingdom, your, your commitment to these things? There's truly no more, no greater or more fulfilling task. So with these words in mind, let's confidently and joyfully pursue this great assignment that God has given us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you know our hearts and uh, you know how much we've read and know about the gospel. You know whether we're Christians yet or whether we still need to repent and put our faith in Jesus Christ. And you know also how we've labored for the kingdom of God, sometimes with great enthusiasm, and sometimes we've backed away from these things. Lord, you know how some maybe have been discouraged in their work in the kingdom or, or confused about just what their responsibility is. Father, you've called us each to a particular place in life. You've called us to vocations. You've called us into families. You've called us a part of the church. And Lord, you've given us gifts that you want to be used both in in the church and outside the church. Lord, bless this congregation of your people. Thank you for the rich blessings that they've enjoyed over the years and Lord, the encouragements that they've been having in, in recent years. Father in heaven, we pray that you will continue to guide this congregation in your uh, ways and in your kingdom. We pray that you will bless their pastors. You will pray that you will bless those who are training to be leaders in the church. We pray that you will bless those who go forth to other countries from this congregation. And we pray that you will bless each individual member from the youngest to the oldest. We pray that all may come to know Jesus Christ as their savior. We pray that they all might love you and serve you. We pray that you will watch over them, never leave them or forsake them. And we pray that you will continue to build your kingdom through this body of your people. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's sing uh, now a wonderful psalm, Psalm 67C, to a wonderful tune. Let's pray for God's blessing on us and that that blessing might extend to all the nations of the world. We'll sing 67C, then have the benediction, and then follow with the doxology 135B. Let's stand and sing.